Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here today solo as far as uh, Positive Energy podcasting team, but I have the great good fortune to be here with Patty Gunderson. Patty Gunderson is with Pacific Northwest National Labs, where she supports several projects in both the energy policy and economics and the buildings and connected systems division. Her particular strength is collaborating with manufacturers, designers, builders, and tradespeople to understand and overcome barriers to adoption of optimized building technologies. She has a ton of research interests. She has quite a background, actually. She has worked for Home Innovation Research Labs. She's worked for the Smith Group, an international AE firm, where she um, did mechanical design as an architectural PE. Some of her interests include whole building energy modeling, building instrumentation, product development. That's what we'll be talking about today, energy code and beyond code, building design for net zero energy, net zero water, net zero waste. I think we'll just stop there. There's all kinds of other things. And she's a professional engineer, as I mentioned. She's in, active in ASHRAE, FIAS, USGBC, Tau Beta Pi, I see. Uh, mm-hmm. Congratulations. And um, she's also an oboist, and she's going to be starting with a short oboe solo. Go ahead, <laughs> okay, so Patty, is there anything else um, you'd like to say about yourself in the way of introductions? No, you did great. I, it's fun to be an engineer, and I'm glad to work at a national laboratory where I can have a huge variety, and it just meets my every expectation. I'm happy to be here and talk to you about it. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I did a good job. It's a lot of, a lot of you to introduce. So today we're going to be talking about circular homes with Patty. This is a PNNL initiative, and uh, I think we can just start with you right there, Patty. So what is a circular home? Despite the name, a circular home is not actually shaped in a circle or a sphere (laughs) or a cylinder. The idea is circularity. So um, we developed this idea in response to a call for proposals from ARPA-E, ARPA-E is a division of the Department of Energy that typically does some pretty interesting cutting edge research. And when I say they do it, what I mean is they encourage it and they fund it and they oversee it. And so it's kind of tricky to get some funding for something like this. And so we knew we Mm -hmm. had to develop a really good team and we have a fabulous team. So members of industry and members of academia, as well as um, a pretty deep bench at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And the idea of circularity in a house really has to do with finding ways that um, that we either delay or possibly indefinitely delay the end of life, the end of the useful life of any particular component. And so in, in our, our plan, the goal is to build a house that will not only last a long time, but have the flexibility so that people want to stay there a long time. And if they need to change it, they can change it without too much difficulty. And then just to be fun, RPE wanted to make sure that these projects all met a requirement of net negative 
carbon. And for a house, net negative carbon means net negative embodied carbon as well as net negative operational carbon. So just throw in that extra little bit there. So our industry partner is Green Canopy Node out of uh, the, the Pacific Northwest. They have offices in both Seattle and Portland, actually Spokane as well. And they are a, a builder developer that has mm-hmm. done a lot of in urban infill, but also some um, multifamily construction and aiming to have most of their portfolio be factory fabricated, um, typically modular fabrication. Our academic partner is Washington State University initially, and then the two structural engineers are so fabulous, so well regarded in their field that they were actually headhunted by Virginia Tech. And so they now are at Virginia Tech and part of the team is still at Washington State. So we have um, great brains working on this from, from all areas, and we're having a blast Um, We initially proposed a three-year project anticipating that we could build a full-scale prototype. And um, as often happens with these type of funding mechanisms, they wanted to make sure that we vetted the idea and and proved the concept first. So we actually have a two-year project to get through a lot of structural testing and all of the simulation and all of the planning so that we end up with a set of useful, usable construction documents. And then when we've proven our metal there, we hope that we will qualify for an extra year or two of funding to build the prototype. We're pretty excited about that possibility, which is in our future and we have to we have to earn it, but well, we're happy to do it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack just right there. Yeah, um, sorry. No, no, it's good. So just starting with ARPA, that I believe that stands for, uh, it's ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Administration, and the E is for energy, energy. related. The E is for energy, yeah. I love that you have this consortium of university and academia, as well as, you know, real world developers. It reminds me very much, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the sand and heat pump water heater. The oh, gosh, yeah. Heat mm-hmm. water, that was also a, a successful consortium, university, mm-hmm. academia, and industry yep. working together. So the initial idea was, was it around... So, so I think it's, um, I get they're woven together. You mentioned energy use, right? So I think we can we can assume everyone listening knows what operational energy means. It means the energy needed to operate the building. But then you also mentioned embodied carbon, embodied in materials, and this idea of circularity. That's where this idea of circularity comes yep. in. So you say you wanted to delay the end of the life of the components and materials. Can you give me an example of how you did that? Sure. Well, one way to do that is to make the building as simple as possible with the highest quality materials that you can manage that have really good durability. So when they're treated right, they will last indefinitely. So one of the materials that we chose from the very beginning is sort of the platform for this whole idea is cross laminated timber. Is that a product you're familiar with? Yes, somewhat. I'd love if you'd give a brief intro for the audience. Well, I'll do my best. I I probably should have said at the get-go that we we do have other industry partners who are are more um, active in sort of supporting the testing and the validation efforts. And so Simpson Strong Tie is one of those because Mm -hmm. a lot of this uh, construction has to do with connections and the connections need to be as non-destructive as possible and demountable so that we can disassemble this building for iterative reuse, maybe in different formats. 
And then the other one, other two that we've got are Mercer Mass Timber. They are the ones who will be producing the CLT material for us. And um, we're relying on a great deal of research that they've done previously. And they also already had an existing relationship with our uh, builder developer partner, Green Canopy Node. Okay. Uh, and then the third one is called Timber HP, and that mm -hmm. is basically a startup for wood fiber insulation. Their first factory just started churning out material the first of, of 2023, and uh, now they produce two types of material. One is a, a loose fill or, or can be a dense fill, uh, but, a, but a, a fibrous fill insulative material. And then their second product is a bat insulation that fits between wall cavities and then their third product will be a rigid board so um, all of those partners are really important and the reason that we chose those materials is because they are long-lived they're high quality they all perform multiple duties as in insulate the insulation is not just insulation but it's also sound dampening and it's not just sound dampening but it's also highly fire resistant so you know, just an example of that, the, the CLT, the cross laminated timber, which I guess some people might be really familiar with blue lamb, which usually mm -hmm. is um, a structural element, typically a beam or a post or something like that. Yeah. Cross laminated timber is actually a sheathing type material or a, you know, it's, it's, it's got one thin dimension and two large dimensions. So it comes off the, um, it comes off the machinery in the production plant as what they call a billet, and it's usually just shy of 12 feet wide, and it could be up to 60 feet long. And it's really kind of a glorified plywood. Mm -hmm. It's made with dimensional lumber, so it's quite thick. And, and, and in our case, we're, we're choosing to utilize a 90 millimeter three-ply uh, material, so that's three 30 millimeter layers and cross laminated means that the longitudinal axis of that dimensional lumber goes one way for the outside layer and then 90 degrees opposite for the inside layer and then longitudinally again for the top layer. So it's a sandwich that's um, compressed with adhesive and it becomes a structural material. I was talking about the circularity of things. It, yeah. it is a structural material, so you no longer have to use like a platform or balloon framing with dimensional lumber. This is an actual panel that becomes the structure. But in addition, it's really beautiful. And so it mm -hmm. can also be the interior finish. And so by sort of finding really high quality materials that have multiple benefits, structure, performance, aesthetics, all kinds of things like that, that's one of the ways that we can ensure that the materials that we use, and, and in this case, those are the two, among the two bulkiest materials that we've got in a building, that, you know, so long as we put them together right, right. we should be able to ensure that they can serve a useful purpose in some new iteration long into the future. Yeah, I like that. If I'm understanding right, there, there's almost like two loops, the, the loops being encouraging the building to delay its end of life. So in one sense, the building design itself is modular and malleable so that different types of family structures could live in the building. Absolutely. Yep. Or maybe even expand the building over time to suit their needs. Modules can be added or subtracted. Very true. Mm -hmm. And then the, and the second one is this more this more classic um, material circularity, like the circular sure. economy. The old adage of reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, um, that's, a, that's an important hierarchy. You start with reduce, 
then comes reuse, and the last one is recycle if you can't manage the other two, right? And so that's been a guiding principle for us. Yep. Trying to remember, my daughter used to listen to this, gotta reduce, reuse, recycle. Oh. He was Jack Johnson, maybe? Oh, played it over and over. Yeah, and so I, I did notice in there that you you used some kind of jargony words, but I liked them. They were uh, disassemblable and demountable. Yeah. Um, so that's possibly somewhat code for not using uh, spray foam insulations or a lot of adhesives external to the glue lambs, or excuse me, the CLTs themselves. Sure. I don't. I don't want to um, be negative about it about any particular material or product, but in in reference to the goals that we've set ourselves, it's true that a spray foam adhesive is contrary to what our what our performance spec would would require or target. So, you know, sometimes you can use spray foam, especially a closed cell spray foam, especially if it's a professional installer, in areas that will allow you to take care of water problems, infiltration problems, and even bolster a structure, right? They have found that adding spray foam can add stiffness to a to a structure, but just its very nature, how it molds and connects to the substrate, you know, the superstructure of the building, it's going to be a permanent application. It's very difficult to peel those uh, pieces of dimensional lumber away from that composite later and reuse them in any way. And honestly, that's one of the things that we were thinking about from the very beginning. You know, there's a really strong movement in this country to recapture the waste, the construction waste stream. And I commend them, but man, that's hard work because they're tearing apart things that when they were put together were not intended to come apart in that way, right? We take yeah. uh, from, from hundreds of years ago, the way that we built structures was to take a bunch of individual components and find ways to permanently connect them. And the more permanent, the better, which makes it all the more surprising and commendable that, that anyone can, can find a way to salvage useful quantities of material from traditional construction. So that was one of the things that we were thinking about from the beginning. How can we choose materials and choose connection methods, as well as, you know, like general layout and kind of the big picture choices? How can we make some of those choices that will provide the degree of structural integrity that we need? And by the way, we're setting ourselves some very stringent targets. We're, we're aiming for not seismic zone three, but but one and two and um, high wind areas and high snow load areas. So wow. you know we're not just picking the easy the easy pickings in the in the nation. We're we're, we're aiming to be, have a design in the end that that will be suitable for a lot of places that are dealing with the weather effects of climate change right now. When we wrote the proposal, um, I don't know if you know how that process works. You know, you see an opportunity described, and and there's a there's a many step process because they don't have time to mess around with things that aren't just just aren't going to work. But they also don't want to dismiss things out of hand. So the first layer of that is to respond to the proposal with usually a concept paper. Sometimes sometimes as little as an abstract that may be under a thousand words, but in this case it was a four page concept paper. And so in that concept paper we sort of compared to the old Sears and Roebuck kit homes that were really uh, really popular in the early 20th century. And there's a certain number of, 
like they were popular in the Pacific Northwest and like uh, Illinois and the Chicago area, some other places. And they said, you know, when, when, when the reviewers responded to our concept paper, they said, well, isn't this just like, you know, how is this any different? Why, why do you need funding to explore this? How can this possibly be different than a Sears kit home? And we said, aha, the difference is a Sears kit home came, you know, on a pallet on a railway car or on a truck and was intended to be traditional construction. It's just that all the parts came in a big box, right? In a single load. But once it was put together, it was all that same premise, all those bits and pieces that are put together in a permanent fashion intended not to be disassembled. And we said, that's the difference between a Sears kit house and what we're doing. We intend for ours to be flexible in configuration, flexible in decomposition so that so that there's always a future home for the pieces. And they could be the modules themselves, right? Or they yeah. could be subcomponents, subassemblies, or then subcomponents, or individual, you know, and individual pieces of a floor or of a wall. So, yeah, very well said. Yeah, you're reminding me of uh, William McDonough, Cradle to Cradle. Back oh maybe yes, fifteen. I still have his book. Do you remember that the 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 first when he first published that book? I don't know if he still does. It was made out of a material that is a plastic like material but it's like a lignin it's a it's a it's a vegetable matter and i don't know where it is now that you've reminded oh, it of decomposed me. itself did it so no, if I'm it's joking. on my shelf i don't i don't remember <laughs> i think it was supposed to be recyclable yes but now that's I have to I go look. now i have to go look yeah. it must be on a shelf someplace i want to see what it looks like now i, I, I would love later. to envision a world where every every material but you know today we're talking about building materials would be um manufactured uh, with its corresponding microbe that helped it to become circular. Um, oh. And you, know, you, you wouldn't necessarily buy the material and the microbe together, but you would be able in the future to say, oh, I'm going to put this back into the soil now, like landfill, right? When it, as it goes back into the landfill, it needs to have microbes. Interesting. I mean, because, I mean, that's, that's one of the fundamental challenges is that many of the materials we work with today are, are on the order of immortal. Right. They, there's no microbes that eat them. They don't really participate in the. Uh... Or worse, some portion of them is immortal. And it's right. it's painfully, exactly. inextricably intermingled with other materials that on their own would be perfectly happy to decompose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is, gets to the larger non-circularity um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when TVs, you could go to the Quickie Mart down the street and test your TV tubes and you could just replace this little tube, but then oh, you don't have to throw yeah. away your whole TV. Like right now, my microwave isn't working. And, you know, I have no, I'm an electrical engineer by training, but I can't really, mm -hmm. it's not appropriate for me to say, oh, I'm going to go diagnose my microwave. So what? instead, I'm just going to end its life and it's going to be I know, it's sad. And you think, what can I make out of it? Like, it's not a microwave is not big enough to make a lending library for your front yard, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I, like, I live in Austin, and we have a fantastic household waste program. I will take it there, and I will hope for the best. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of kooky about styrofoam. Like, if someone gives me styrofoam, and you know, for anything, packaging, food containers, I'll wash it. I'll put it out in my shed, and I will take it there. And I watch it; they grind it up. And but I'm, I'm veering us off. No, that's fine. That's fine. I was going to, I was just going to mention, have you been yes. following the right to repair legislation? Yes. 
Do you want to talk about that for a minute? We can. I don't know much about it, but I'm fascinated by it and I'm extremely hopeful. I know yeah. a lot of farmers and ranchers and I come from farmers and ranchers stock. So they are mm -hmm. the they are the kings and queens of making do and solving problems and um, making things last forever. And, you know, I think this all came about because of John Deere making their software proprietary. And yeah. people, were, people were missing entire harvest seasons because some little thing in the coding went wrong and they couldn't touch it. They weren't allowed to touch it. Right. Darn yeah. It's, it's this, I mean, just to go like meta on us, like everything we do as a human uh, society, you would hope would be done for human well-being. And yet I contend that like my new car is like a cell phone with wheels, you know, and I have these finger things. Like, what are they going to do if I have, something breaks in a computer chip? Right. But my first vehicle was a 1976 Chevy van that I rebuilt, took it all apart, transmission engine, no Analog. chips, just belts and hoses. And, you know, if it had air, spark and fuel, it would start. And, you know, there were, of course, downsides. But I could drive that thing with this sense of confidence, like, ah, and it's similar to working with an old tractor. And Yeah. Okay. But so Thank to you. bring this back, um, demountable, disassemblable. I mean, I, I really love the concept here. And just to read from uh, the slide that you helped share with me, reimagine residential housing for a lifetime of flexibility and a full range of reuse scenarios. So yeah. then you go through and you could see where they thought about the Sears house. It says design a modular prototype residence with four characteristics, factory, factory built, modular construction. I want to talk about that. Negative embodied carbon. Huge. Talk about that net zero operational carbon. Also in, super important, less exciting. I mean, it's pretty well known at this point. Sure. Um, just, people know how to do that. It's a matter of work and have some renewable energy. But then the last one designed for deconstruction and reuse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is the challenge. So you have negative embodied carbon, which explains why you have CLT, which explains why you have timber HP products, because you're looking for these, these products that are themselves well, or either are or can be carbon sequestering, net negative right. carbon. There's a whole other issue here about forests and carbon that we'll sure. be often. Yes, yes. And in fact, even in the um, embodied carbon industry, which I'm not an expert on this, so caveat. Um, caveat, caveat. We have, it, we have experts on our team. And then uh, ARPA-E, knowing that this is a, sort of a, a nascent research area, hired, yeah. uh, not hired, they, they let a second funding opportunity for researchers who are ensconced in that embodied carbon world to come up with, you know, kind of in tandem with what the, what the technology research teams are doing, to come up with a fair, detailed, complete uh, method of accounting for carbon. There are lots of ways to do it. You know, it's usually called an LCA, life cycle analysis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then if you add wb to the front of it, it's a whole building life cycle analysis and so we are dealing with that on a regular basis you asked about the design earlier one of the important things and in fact i'll, I'll send you a link we just had published um one of my colleagues led led the writing of a journal article that that lays out our design premises and methodologies so that we can incorporate the life cycle analysis uh, for the embodied carbon at the same level that you do for any kind of integrated design process. It, it is no, it's not common yet for 
architects and engineers and all the different engineering disciplines and the contractor and the building owner to collaborate with the life cycle aspect. And so, you know, it's just one more aspect of design that is ripe for including in that in, in that total integrated process that has to go from the very inception of an idea through concept and schematic design and design development. And finally, you've got construction documents and then it goes out the door and it gets built. And then, you know, you deal with all the specs that are associated with that, that completed building. So, you know, we're, we're taking it pretty seriously. We feel like all of the boxes need to be ticked or this Mm -hmm. type of approach is probably not going to be adopted. So anyway, uh, yes, it's part of the integrated design process. So we are doing whole building life cycle analysis and it is iterative. So, you know, we made the initial choice, let's do CLT and wood fiber insulation. Those are big volumes. Those are big weights of construction materials, where does that get us? So one of the very first things we did was get our life cycle analysis team member to give us a very quick, it's kind of a spot check, where are we at? And then we're comparing to a reference house all the time, right? So a reference house has lumber in it too, but it also has a lot of plastics and a lot of rubber and a lot of masonry. Masonry is very high in embodied carbon. So you know we're trying to identify all of those things, reduce them to the degree that we can manage or better yet find an alternate to that incumbent material so Hmm. right now we are considering a concrete foundation but it is a stem wall construction that is of a design that our structural engineers have worked on and it reduces the total quantity of concrete by a certain amount and then there are some concrete mixes that are becoming available that have much reduced embodied carbon, you know, so we can pick away, pick away, pick away at the things that have carbon in them and an embodied carbon burden, right? I feel like it makes sense to talk about that as a burden and then try to offset supplement or do a one-to-one exchange with as many um, products that have sequestered carbon as possible. So you're right, those wood fiber products, any vegetable vegetable matter, those plants Mm -hmm. pulled carbon out of the air in order to grow and that carbon is sequestered in the fibers of the plant happily as part of that process, spits out some oxygen for the rest of us to enjoy. And so long as we don't undergo a burning, a combustion uh, process, or a decomposition process, right. that carbon will stay sequestered, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the problem is there's a lot of fibrous products that do have short life cycles and are buried in a landfill where sure they'll decompose, but you know, that's how we get all those methane gases and whatnot, right? And I'm probably gonna say something wrong. I'm not a chemist. So when I say methane, I, that's probably not the right term, but anyway. Yeah, whatever they're flaring off of the landfill. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is decomposition of things in a landfill, and it's happening, I guess, anaerobically, right? Because they're all buried, and um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so eventually there's something that gets released, and that's not doing us a lick of good. So the idea that we would take these fibrous vegetable matter materials and kind of ensconce them in a structure that we expect to be around for hundreds of years seems like a pretty good plan, and wherever we can get them, we'll get them, right? Like um, it's, there's some pretty good research that describes that forests that have been managed 
for the purpose of forestry for the construction industry can be net benefactors to their communities, right? Net benefactors to the environment, to runoff, to moisture control, to the local wildlife, so long as they're managed well. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. not that's necessarily a given, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but so long as they're managed well, they can be a net benefactor and they can be a benefactor for the local workforce and for, you know, local tax base. And so there's a lot of great benefits that can be had by participating in something like that. There's a really interesting story that you might want to look up later with Timber HP. Wood fiber insulation has been very common in Europe for a number of decades. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not a big deal in Europe. But mm-hmm. it's been imported here. And you know, anything that has a carbon footprint of any sort, whether it's negative or positive, as soon as you start transporting it, now you're you're sort of adding to that carbon burden. And so we didn't have a manufacturer in the US for a long time. And Timber HP took up that mantle and said, why don't we? Such a great material, solve so many problems, and we've got such a great resource here in the U.S. So their first plant is in Maine. And one of the interesting things is they had almost their choice of um, abandoned paper mills Mm -hmm. to look for as a place to launch from. There were a lot of communities that were sort of dispossessed of their means of production because society yeah. just moved on and to paper. means of economic well-being altogether. exactly yeah mm-hmm. and what yeah. happens ironically that that paper mills have always sort of followed the production of dimensional lumber and so those paper mills would take what was considered a waste product chips bark branches and leaves right Paper mills would take those on. They couldn't use all pieces of them, but they would take the whole bit. They would sift through and find what they could use for paper production. And that turned a waste product into a commodity. And when the paper mills went out of business, it became a waste product again. And a waste product has cost implications for the producer. So the producers, all of a sudden, they used to be able to sell a waste as a commodity. Now they're stuck with a waste product that they have to find a place for. So if they bury it, they're, they're paying to transport it and find a place to bury it. If they're composting it, same deal. They've come, got to come up with a process. If they're burning it, it's very difficult with wood products to turn that into you know, a useful source of energy. So it was really just carbon being you know, put up in smoke into the atmosphere. And so by virtue of, of a wood fiber plant coming along, all of a sudden they can capture that, make it a product again. It's now a commodity that turns into a useful product and a, a jobs generator for the local area. So there's just so many really good and stories not that I have anything to do with. What? what and circular. It's circular. Circular it, it again. Circular yeah. Economy. yeah, this yeah. cradle to cradle concept. Yeah. yeah. No, nobody really has any objection to that, right? Because they're they're taking the place of a previous industry that just isn't viable anymore. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. You know, thinking about Gutex coming from Europe, you know, as this carbon sequestering material being shipped on a giant right. transport ship, you yep. can just feel the, 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 log, the, the logician the kind of being frittered away. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if you know, and I don't know that it's hundred percent true, but I've definitely read in Saul Griffith's book that 40% of all maritime trade cargo is fuels. So 
What are oh, we moving around boy. in those ships? We're moving fuels. So as soon as we start to electrify, this is another example of a circular economy with, with outsized benefits, then 40% of ships don't need to run because they're moving yeah. fuels. But I want to bring us back. The knock on effect, right? Yeah. So, and this, that's sort of the theme. So it's, it's fine. It really wasn't a tangent. We, we have this, this theme you're designing, you know, for a lifetime of flexibility and a full range of reuse scenarios. Right. But, By so the you way, know, I do want to, I do want to put a pitch in that lifetime of flexibility on, on the architect's decision. They initially started with what they, what, what is known in the trade as a visitable design, which means that you can get, you know, there's handicapped accessibility into the door Understood. and throughout all of one floor. And so the bathroom was situated in such a way that it could be easily upgraded to be an accessible bathroom. A bonus area was set aside in the living space so that eventually it be, could become a first floor bedroom. And over time, they have decided to expand on that and make it more and more accessible for the same reason. I, I, when I still worked at Home Innovation, I had a number of projects, one for the VA, one for HUD, that had to do with accessibility topics. And you would be surprised at the amount of waste and the amount of money that's associated with remodeling to make a space accessible and the differential, the delta between the cost to do it as a remodel project versus the cost to incorporate it in the initial design simply as a matter of course. It's like a 10 to one ratio or something. Um, so yeah. another example of what in traditional construction is a real missed opportunity. Let's pause and let that sink in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's actually very good. That's where I wanted to lead you and you just helped me. Thank you. Because architecture is such a powerful uh, role in our society. Yes. And in this case, you know, you mentioned you were going from the concept phase, SD, DD, CD, but it really was um, multivariate, like, like solving a Rubik's cube or a multivariate Sudoku or something, because yep. you weren't just looking at the program, right? You know, two bedroom, single bath. Right. You weren't just doing this visibility or aging in place design. Mm -hmm. You weren't just trying to make it beautiful because by the way, this isn't going to sell. This isn't going to become a viable product. Unlikely if it looks like a, you know, a Stalag or some sort of, right. you also had embodied, you're looking for low embodied carbon materials, carbon sequestering materials. Then you have structure, you have energy, you're yes. looking at economics, you're looking at moisture stability, stability, looking at life cycle analysis. So I think it's worthy of just pausing and honoring the scale of the challenge that was taken on by that architecture team. I mean, really a, a, mm -hmm. a bold move and a big step. And was who, where, how was that team composed? Was that someone at PNNL or who was that? No, the architecture, the architects that are involved all come from Green Canopy Node. Okay, so what is, tell me a little more about Green Canopy Node, please, yes. Sure. They're developers, you mentioned developers, but they're design build developers. Yeah, Green Canopy Node, it's actually a, um, it's, it's, it's the, it's the um, combination of two firms. One, Node used to do just the buildings and Green Canopy used to do, boy, I hope I've got it right. 
I think Green Canopy used to do just like development and planning. And now they're together so they can basically take a design, again, this idea of circularity and just completeness. They can take a design from inception to sale, to point of sale, all with their one firm. Wow. And, and that's important for them to be able to control the outcome. And the reason they wanted to control the outcome was they themselves had some carbon and energy goals that were pretty challenging. And one of the really cool things about that partnership is that, and actually I should say the two people that we work with there are Sadie Carlson and Darren Gricken. I mispronounce his name all the time, but I think it's called, it's because uh, we call him Darren, right? So I bet I think it's Gricken. Anyway, they had already committed to some of these goals and they had a parallel research project that they were funding as part of their startup to test some of the, of the um, modular pre-construction or factory fabrication principles that they mm -hmm. were aiming for. A lot of it has to do with the, we know that in a factory you can build things that are very high quality because the ability to follow processes to their logical end is really easy in under one roof. You know, there wasn't, there's not a lot of waste because you can do a lot of planning and you can stage your materials properly and you can share out larger and smaller pieces between different projects. And um, so that there's a lot of speed improvements associated. So they were, they were especially interested in the part where you get all the bits together that you can do in the factory yeah. And then yeah. all that gets delivered to the site and it still has to be assembled in some way, right? It has to be placed on the foundation at the bare minimum, but typically there are other components that need to be added after the fact. And there's a lot of sort of interior finishing that often needs to happen. And so they were really curious um, about the degree to which they could um, improve quality and reduce waste and reduce labor in doing that. And so they had a parallel project where they were building not the same building that we have come up with, but a, similar enough that we can learn some lessons from it. And I know you've got a little bit, a, a lot of building science background. And uh -huh. what's interesting is that, you know, when we're starting to do an energy model for the design that we came up with, you know, there's always assumptions to be made and then you make your design choices and they're no longer assumptions. These are now the, the choices. And, and, and in an energy model, there's all kinds of defaults that you let ride for a while. And, you know, there are some that you know you're going you're gonna to have to make a choice, a target, and you hope that you meet right. the target. And usually you have to work a little harder to meet the target. One of those is air infiltration, right? And typically using the, the volumetric unit, air changes per hour measured at 50 pascals, right? So when they first put this uh, test house that's similar to ours and was being developed in parallel with ours, when they, but a little okay. ahead. So a little something ahead. is getting built. We don't their, have to wait for their project. Yeah. So it won't be, it will not be net negative carbon will not be net negative energy, but it's like on the path, right? When they first put it together without doing anything extra, just assembling the modules and making them airtight and weathertight, you know, just in the normal fashion, not chasing down anything. They blew a 0 0.8 ACH right That's off the gate. Five. Right. So, so as we're playing with our energy model, we no longer have to think, okay, Spokane, Washington code IECC is Right, we know you're going to bury the code requirement. Yeah, we, we can be very conservative and, and model it as, as one ACH. And, you know, if we're willing to um, 
assume that we'll have to do some sleuthing at the end and chase down a few leaks. Uh, we know we can get to 0 0.8, 0 0.6 or better. You know, I mean, that's passive house type. Yeah, yeah. I love it. You know, yeah. it's interesting how just I feel like we're kind of meandering. We're going a little circular here. Um, a little circular. But, uh, and I actually, uh, actually, so the, the code with regard to code, it's always perplexed me. I mean, it's very clear that code as far as U values and R value, U factors and R values and SHGC, they're approaching very good thermal, con thermal control, except for the air control layer in code. Somehow code air control layers are still, you know, they're still at five where I am. Right. right? Yep. And it can be so much better. Um, yep. So I, I believe that's, that's going to be the next phase. So the other thing is that this green canopy node organization, because they are both design and construction, right? Architectural design and construction, it makes sense for them to really put in more at the front end, more effort, more design, really to right. face this multivariate design challenge because their same firm will reap the benefits on the back end of you know, low, lower waste and higher performance and market and brand strength and all these things. Right. And so it's interesting that, that the most complex, the more complex a system is, the more resilient it is, right? So nature is the ultimate in resilient systems. I mean, and we're straining it, you know, to absorb our chemical wastes and thermal wastes. But it's it's also very complex and very resilient. And yet, what we want to do as humans, we want to build, you know, simple systems. Well, simple systems are actually subject to failure a little more easily. Okay, so good. I want to bring us back to sort of these these main points of this modular prototype residence, which is factory built modular construction. Let's talk about that. A little more about negative embodied carbon, particularly with the structural issues. Um, net zero operational carbon. I think we could talk briefly about the energy modeling. And then the last one was designed for deconstruction and reuse. And then I know from our initial conversations setting up this podcast, that there was something called a techno-economic analysis done. So those are the areas I'll lead you in. If you could talk to us about the factory-built modular construction. So I, I may have mentioned before, the factory production was something that was part of our original concept paper. We felt right. like that like was the really- Like house, uh-huh. Yeah, just for, for waste reduction and quality control. And- <laughs> There are interestingly some um, advantages to be had on a, on a financial basis as well, because you know typically it takes three months to get a building constructed and occupied, and uh, can be a lot shorter with factory fabrication. So that's an advantage because you're paying on a construction loan for a shorter period of time, right? Really cool. And and the contingency could be smaller because the risk is reasonably smaller. Mm-hmm. So there's beautiful some advantages the there. Mm -hmm. Say again? I said it's beautiful how the benefits accrue when you start to think in systems. If you start to pay attention, yep, yep. And as soon as you notice them, you know, put a tick mark in that column, right? So there are some advantages there that just have to do with the factory process. And then I think we mentioned there's uh, quality control and waste reduction opportunities in a factory that you just don't get when yeah. uh, the entire process is on site. Absolutely. So those are really valuable to us. You know, we mentioned the circularity of the use, the the, the implication that this building will be functional um, indefinitely 
if treated right. And so um, we're, we're really keen to have the best materials that we can afford and that are warranted. You know, it's the old adage, you don't want to over-engineer something, yeah, right? Yeah, you you got to think about what the goals are and meet the goals and then give yourself a little safety factor, but don't, don't waste your hard-earned dollars or effort on going way above that. Um, it, almost anybody can build a bridge across a creek, right? But it takes an engineer to build it affordably. So no, anyway, that's that's kind of the idea there. We want the best materials that will do the service that we want. And mm-hmm. um, and we want materials that people are going to like, because, as you say, if we don't if we don't make it aesthetically pleasing and functional on a day to day basis, people are not going to choose this option. Yeah. So the the factory building does kind of play into the techno-economic analysis in that modules, unfortunately, by virtue of being three-dimensional, are harder to transport over the road on the back of a, a trailer behind mm-hmm. a semi than panels are. And so a lot of our exploration has been, um, can we really justify the modular approach as opposed to, for instance, a panelized approach. And that's still an open question for us. We're, we're operating on the premise that the, that the modularity, the the three dimensionality of it will be the right way to go, but we're open-minded to see what comes. This is, you know, with any funding that you get from the government, there's always a go, no go uh, decision point. And, and we're approaching that. Um, We need to report to RPE at the end of this month, January, with um, all the findings that uh, meet the milestones that we put in our statement of work and prove to them that we have discovered what we need to discover and that the results of what we discover indicate that we're on the right path. Or if we're not on the right path, that we have a way to, to reconnect to, to our goals. And so far, everything looks pretty darn good. But one of the questions genuinely is, do we stick with the modules or are we going to have to back off from that? We're all pretty committed to the modules. We think that there are some real advantages to that. One of the reasons is because every time you have an on-site connection, a transition point, um, vertical interior corners, vertical exterior corners, transition to a roof line, transition to a foundation, every time you have a transition like that, you run the risk of air infiltration, durability issues that have to do with water. If we can deal with modules, we can nip a lot of that in the bud. So so that's one of our our main goals. Not to mention electrical connections, plumbing connections. Oh gosh, yes. Which Which, by the way, you were asking about Green Canopy. No, they have a very nice, uh, they they had pre-designed and brought to the table what they call a mechanical wall or an MEP wall, which is an interior wall that's thicker than normal. And they have found a way to route most of the electrical and the mechanical systems through there. And that that's part of that modularity that allows you to have super flexibility so that in the future, if you need to change something, everything you need is all in the right spot. You know, Love it. we've done this for clients. Uh, Positive Energy has like shameless plug here and exterior door into that thick wall. Exactly. Uh, what it requires, though, is architect buy in from the early phases because that wall has to be incorporated into the design. So true. So true. Early phase buy-in, and and you asked before about the process. You know that iteration has occurred everywhere. We say, well, what happens to the LCA, the embodied carbon analysis, when we add or subtract some of these um, wood fiber materials, right? 
And then how does that affect price? Because CLT is not cheap. Wood fiber insulation is brand new. It's new to the market. It's actually surprisingly affordable given how new to the market it is. And it mm -hmm. will become more so, of course, but higher quality materials cost more money and you have to justify that choice. And so we go back to the, to the economic analysis. And, and then there are implications with respect to how much of it is factory built versus how much is built on site, how much is associated with labor versus how much is associated with materials. So there are all these repercussions to all the different things and true of energy as well, right? You know, if we had to, if we couldn't depend that we were going to be able to capture 0.8 ACH for infiltration, that, that the energy implications, they're not extreme, but they matter. Yeah. And uh, the same is true. Like we went through many, many iterations of how much PV are we going to design for the roof? Because again, there's a carbon burden associated with photovoltaic panels and the armature, the structure that holds them on the roof and all of the distribution. But without that, we can't possibly make net negative, but we don't want to just higgledly piggledly throw panels everywhere because they're expensive as well. And now we're back to techno-econ, right? So it's all about this integrated de design process where everybody's part of the team and willing to share what their ideas are. If I were to change this, what would happen, right? right so right. I think that's part of what the you asked about the factory fabrication. It just becomes one more, not design challenge, but one more design consideration. Yeah. Yeah, I think, thank you. I, I think it's important to, to recognize that as a society, we are facing a wholesale kind of redesign of where we live and how we deliver where we live to ourselves as a society, how we think about it, how we deliver it. And this project, the Circular Homes, really like pulled my heartstrings because it's mm -hmm. it's really my digging, you know, wading right into the deep end here of how challenging it is. I love that there's an MEP core. It's a concept we've been promoting here for a long time. I'd be interested to know if there's other biogenic fibers in our future besides trees, right? Trees is a crop that takes several decades to mature. Yeah. We can, we can hold that for later. I mean, it's just a, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good one to ask Chris because yeah. um, there's a real question about whether um, a vegetable matter material that has a one season growing cycle versus a several decades growing season should be a, accounted for differently in that analysis. He's the guy to ask. She's referring to Chris Magwood, uh, Endeavor yep. Center and RMI. He's going to be coming up from interviewing him in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, we've already covered factory built modular. You get better QC, standard processes, waste reduction opportunities, just the ability to really think everything through this, this, yep. this fact that you could make your, a lot of your MEP connections uh, happen in the factory is, is really big. And Another important it, one is uh, inspections, code inspections. Yes. Yep. Can happen very, very um, seamlessly. Yep. You know, time time impacts are reduced. Mm -hmm. So then we have three more topics that we've talked on some. So let's see if there's any sort of final thoughts on them. So the the negative embodied carbon, you know, and you know, I have a question there, right? So we like assuming that the tree is in fact carbon net carbon sequestering, even if the forest industry is needs to be uh, yep. held to a higher standard to cause that to happen. I think it's clear that that, that could be the truth. Um, and so you've been steering or, or your whole team has been steering toward biogenic materials. And by the way, listeners, so biogenic is just a flowery way. Oh, that's a pun. <laughs> flowers are biogenic. It's just a fancy way of saying 
a material that was alive uh, and growing, and as doing so, it was pulling in carbon. I guess that's what it says. Do you know what biogenic means, actually? I like yours. Okay, I'll stick with that. It's certainly a workable definition. Um, so the net zero operational carbon, that piece, right? Now, you mentioned this 0.8 ACH50 is a big help. Yep. So, so we had a suspicion from the very beginning, you know, just based on experience in the industry and all the modeling we've done on other things, we had a suspicion uh, about what were going to be sort of the watershed issues. And so we knew that it would have a lot to do with the insulation and that it's actually pretty darn easy to, so long as you're doing new construction, you're paying attention. It's pretty easy to insulate slabs or, or uh, stem walls very easy to insulate ceilings and attics, again, with foreknowledge. It's harder to install really, really thick layers of wall insulation, especially when it is entirely exterior to the wall structure. And so that was always going to be a pain point of a, a little bit of negotiation between architecture and energy um, teams to, to come to an understanding there. In addition, we want super, super e uh, efficient mechanical equipment, right? And that mechanical equipment is heating, cooling, water heating for domestic use, right? And then potentially ventilation. Um, you know, you cannot in this day and age build a super tight structure and not deal with ventilation, direct mechanical here, ventilation, here. but it's balanced, right? So there's a cost implication there, right? And there's an energy burden there. And every piece of equipment has an embodied carbon burden, which, by the way, again, I'm you'll find it. out from, from your future conversations with people who know way more about embodied carbon than I do. But mechanical equipment is this giant black hole that has not been yeah, properly it, addressed. It's yet. getting grayish. Yeah, I'm speaking with some people from HOM and Hapholt. There you go. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Uh, the equipment really matters. And we started out, for instance, um, before we had the results from that first Spokane build of the modular that, that had 0.8 ACH, we started out with, I think, 3 ACH. You know, you just go with code to be conservative and then kind of passive level. So we, we built a, a matrix to study for um, operational energy and carbon to determine kind of what the bookends were. And how mm -hmm. much do we have to play with? With respect to domestic water heating, we did a very efficient, with a very short distribution run, instantaneous electric water heater. And then we did a heat pump water heater. And then for windows, we did a code window of, you know. Wait, you have two different two different heat, water heaters in the building? No, no. I mean, when we're modeling yeah. it, we want to bookend each parameter choice. So so rather than rather than choosing five different water heating types, we choose a really good one and the, a less good one, but both of which are attainable. Got it. You know, we could find them, we could, we can find the equipment, we can afford the equipment, we have confidence that the equipment can run well. So we're, we're picking sort of bookends for each parameter. So for windows, we picked a code window and a, you know, a passive house level window. For insulation, we picked code insulation and, you know, sort of crazy wild insulation, you know, thicknesses that were that brand? challenging to construct. Same thing with crazy uh, wild. what's that crazy <laughs> wild. Yeah. Um, same thing with uh, uh, the equipment efficiencies, you know, uh, you could do air source heat pumps, zoned 
uh, indoor outdoor units, split system that you know could maybe get you 18, 19, 20 sear and maybe 10.5 HSPF, or you could do mini splits that mm-hmm. are you know really really high efficiencies. So we same thing picked two. It became immediately clear we cannot get to net negative energy. We again the ARPA E targets are net negative operational energy, net negative embodied carbon, and so we can't get there if we don't produce energy on the roof, and if we don't use really super efficient equipment. And for heat pump for water heating, that meant a heat pump water heater. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know. I mean, because you go from the category of resistance heat, which you're never going to you're never going to get a coefficient of performance at one. You know, it's going to be 0.95, 0.98, 0.99 if you're lucky. And then it's not going to remain that way as the system ages. But with a heat pump water heater, you could end up with a composite performance of two and a half COP two and a half, maybe or better. And so um, it was very clear from the beginning, uh, we're going to have to just go all in on a heat pump water heater. It was also clear that we're going to have to go mini splits. Uh, A traditional air source heat pump split system wasn't going to do it for us. We needed the efficiencies available in a mini split system. We had a compact design, two stories, very well designed so that there was proper interplay communication between living spaces and there was short runs for distribution. And so a mini split is very sensible. It's a good choice. So these were ducted mini splits? These are, no, no, they're um, cassette or separate okay. heads. You just distribution. That was what I understood. Okay. So you're using. Yeah. So I'm talking food. about the, I'm talking about the refrigerant distribution. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And it was, was it one-to-one uh, indoor unit, outdoor unit, or was it two indoor wall heads with one outdoor unit? At this point, we're doing one outdoor unit, either two or three heads. I can't remember if we've settled on that yet. It seems to be um, where we are. Yeah, so it became very clear early on that we were going to have to do certain things to even get in the ballpark. So then once we were able to constrain it, then we could look at the geometry of the roof and say, okay, um, we have X number of feet to plant solar panels on. What's a real solar panel that I can actually buy in the market today, off the shelf whenever possible, right, that has good longevity, and high efficiency and so we we chose you know did a little research and chose a panel that we felt comfortable with that becomes a limiting factor right now i if i net that out on an annual basis which by the way it's all speculative right because you know we're using insulation charts and 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 weather data that have been historically accurate but things do change and you have years that are not typical and so you do your best so we calculated how much we could produce and um, actually had an argument, uh, a, a pleasant argument, a friendly argument <laughs> among all of our energy crew about whether or not we would even consider putting um, solar panels on roofs that don't face east or west or south, right? I mean, we know that there's an, an efficiency 40%. toll. There's a penalty, right? That doesn't mean they don't. They don't capture anything. Right, they're still producing free they're electrons. They're producing something. And so the question then becomes, what does what does our economics specialist say about that? You know, PV on, on the south or the southwest or the southeast uh, produces X amount of kilowatts 
and uh, or, you know, in the case of, of an annual accounting kilowatt hours. And on the north side, it's a factor of 0.5 or 0.45, you know, right? And but for the same cost. So how, how badly do we need it? And can we offset that with more insulation instead? And by the way, we don't want the wall insulation that's you know, like super thick. I think Timber HP, their thickest single layer rigid exterior insulation is going to be a nine and a quarter inches. That is a massive piece of insulation. We'd rather not hang that from the wall if we can avoid it. At this point, we think what we're looking at about five and a half inches. Then you have fasteners, which get expensive. I mean, sure. it all just... Yeah, yes, yes. And in all the implications of durability, right? Because there's sheer to be dealt with and all of that. So anyway, it's a lot of push and pull. And we think that we're at a point now where we can make it. We've been using Spokane uh, because that's where if we were to build a prototype eventually, that's probably where it would go. And so that's been our target area. But we're trying to come up with a design that's going to work in all kinds of locations. Locations that need way less energy because they're more temperate and also locations like Maine and Minnesota that need a lot more production and a lot more efficiency. And by the way, we talked a little bit about code and about the techno-economic analysis. And by the way, ARPA-E does care a lot about what this thing costs. If we can't prove to them that there's value in this thing, we're not going to get funded for that prototype. Uh, construction. Uh, we need to prove to them that it's real. And we just got back some of our um, analysis uh, last week. And even though on a first cost basis, our circular home is slightly more expensive than the incumbent, when you calculate in the the retained value of of the materials and the lower energy impact and a few other things, uh, and then and then it's appropriate to assign of monetary value to carbon. When you calculate all of that in, we're a much better value than the incumbent. And so I think we're in good position to make our case to ARPA-E. And um, I look forward to that. But there's yeah. more than one way to skin that cat. I shouldn't say skin that cat. There's more than one way to think about that. <laughs> and um, yeah. <laughs> and one of those ways is first of a kind, completely unique, right? We know that's always gonna be more expensive. But then they have this clever device called nth of a kind. So presuming that we can produce enough and get enough purchasers so that we can actually mount a new approach in the industry, that nth of a kind has fewer and fewer extra inputs, right? It, it, it becomes more and more affordable. Well, some of those inputs have to do with the design and the the, tr the transference of an on-site production schedule to a factory production schedule. And some of it has to do with marketing and getting uh, normal home buyers to adopt it. And some of it has to do with just all the things that cost money. And, you know, as we were working on this, we realized energy modeling is now ubiquitous in the industry for high performance homes. Right. But honestly, it doesn't have to be. It's a good thing to know how to do. And, and it's it's a great gut check. But it's not necessary for us to expect that everybody who wants to put up one of these houses needs to do an energy model. We can come up with a design where very few of those components will change from one climate to the next. Maybe you'll, you'll be a little over-engineered in Atlanta, Georgia, 
Maybe it's a little more insulation than you would typically do, but it's enough to do Duluth or Minneapolis. And, and you know, maybe the things that we allow to be changed are a small handful of things so that we don't have to do a brand new energy model each and every time. Energy modeling is an expensive endeavor and it's a time consuming endeavor. And it's also, you know, subject to error when um, mistakes are made for inputs, parameter inputs. And so one of the things that we're doing is relying pretty heavily on all the work that the International Code Council has done with the ICC, the International Energy Conservation Code, to come up with alternate compliance methods to prove that you've met code. So yeah. to prove code and to give a reasonable indication, a delta of how efficient one house is, in our case, the circular house, compared to the incumbent, we're going to use the UA alternative method. Mm -hmm. It's based on real science. They did a huge amount of research. We know that area weighted averages of the thermal transmittance of all of those envelope components is a really good proxy for comparative uh, energy usage. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so we're huge advocates of that methodology because literally anybody can do that. Mm -hmm. They can do it just based on the product specification. Yeah, I have background in that. Yep, so I'm very oh, familiar. Yeah. Rim rate, yeah. resonance, all that. So you know, the, the other thing that's happening, and by the way, uh, we really need to start bringing this in for a landing. Sure. Party. But just one thing that's happening there is that while we're doing this analysis, market innovation, research and development. Um, the average homeowner's like understanding of homes and perspective on air water heat pumps or heat pump water heaters. But so air water heat pumps are changing the performance and cost and what's available. Excuse me. I said air water. That's actually a Freudian. In slip. our case, it will be air to air. Mm -hmm. You're having air source heat pump, but I actually think in three to five years, it's going to be an air to water heat pump, right? With instead of refrigerant distribution, water distribution. And um, then the grid energy mix is changing. So net zero carbon, for mm -hmm. operational, it starts to get easier because the grid itself gets cleaner. We also right. have solar panels. We have batteries. We have so many technological changes happening in the background while we do this analysis that takes a little bit of like a psychological, emotional fortitude to do an analysis because those, those people doing the analysis are very clear that the assumptions they make are fixed to a certain point in time. And, uh, mm -hmm. yep. you know, so there's that sort of circularity as well, that the time keeps cycling and products change. And Yeah, I have one more quick comment, and then I'd love to hear final thoughts from you, if anything we missed. You, we, we mentioned MEP as a black hole. And um, it's becoming less so. I mean, it, and actually the, the news, so there's MEP 2040, which I'm participating in. And I'm about to interview some people. I've actually interviewed Andrew Himes associated with that. But Great. it's becoming clear that MEP systems have a significant impact on embodied yeah. carbon, as we all suspected. And so there's some podcasts coming up with Luke Leung from SOM and Kaylee Hode from Borough Haphold. So really exciting stuff. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you for any final thoughts on the circular home uh, from you. Well, I think I gave short shrift to the, the structural work that's being done. Um, mm -hmm. I mentioned that we wanted to have uh, 
connection methods that were as, as non-destructive as possible so that we can achieve the disassembly goals that we're aiming for. And so they're working with Simpson Strong Tie to, to, to do mostly um, either bolt connections or screw mm. connections nice. and, and some, some really neat new plate assemblies that um, provide greater stiffness and load capacity with fewer embedded fasteners. That's fantastic. So that's super cool. And that's your structural is, engineer. Those are the structural engineers, yeah. Is that um, part of the Green Canopy Node team as well? Nope, that is the Virginia Tech team. So that's Adam uh, Phillips, and it. Dr. Adam Phillips, and Dr. Ivars Vilguts. Fantastic. And this is one of their big projects that they're working on. They're, they're leaders in their field. And in addition to those kind of connections that they are testing, they're also testing some of the um, mortise and tenon type connections and um, peg connections and have found that in some cases there's even greater capacity. And wow. so the possibility of, of using an age old technology like that in a modern prefabrication process is pretty exciting. I think I do not know yet which method they'll, decide is the most sensible it will be a whole team conversation but that is some, they, they've been um testing in the lab destructive testing on sub assemblies that include both those kinds of connections and it's been fascinating to watch their progress another thing that that team came up with you're probably very familiar with all of the things that have happened in construction trying very hard to get certain assemblies factory made and delivered to the site. And a real success story is prefab trusses, roof trusses. Right. A very sad sort of, um, a, what, I, what I find a disappointing story is the fact that SIPs have not, structural insulated panels, have not taken over the industry like I think they should have. Um, I think they're a really good solution and they have not made inroads. Whereas I don't think you can drive through any neighborhood that's under construction and not see a truss package sitting on the ground mm -hmm. staged, ready to go. Right. So, so prefab trusses have completely infiltrated the market, but interestingly, green canopy node in conversation with our structural team at Virginia tech looked at that from a process point of view and said, sure, fine. Those are great. But again, it is a, it is a, an assembly that's put together from dimensional lumber and fasteners that are intended to be permanent. And those are not materials, none of them that are already in that factory where we're going to be putting together the cross laminated timber superstructure. So they came up with using the geometry of that billet that I talked to you about the, the very large, um, uh, laminated composite that comes off the assembly line at the CLT plant, they took those dimensions and said, what roof slopes and what uh, building geometries can we accommodate with a monolithic structural arch made of CLT as opposed to a stick built truss package? And they came up with a brand new design. You know, none nice. of this stuff is earth shattering. It's not like early technology where we're inventing a new chemical or something, but it is 
a different application using a different method that's very appropriate to our needs. So this ties into the iterative planning and sharing among disciplines to determine what are the implications, thinking about um, the opportunities and the constraints that are associated with the factory production. Yeah. And they now have come up with an alternate. So a monolithic structure that's an arch to, to support the roof, constrained by that 60 foot by somewhat less than 12 because the edges as it comes off kind of have to be shaved off. So it's like 11 and a half feet that you've got to work with. So that would really constrain the size of these modules, right? And then they came up with a really clever way to make that arch in two pieces so that now we have almost unlimited flexibility. And they came up with a connection in the middle that honestly, I'll send it to you when we're done. It's artistic, like it's beautiful to look at. And um, it's a it's a, like a central bolted connector of these two arches. But the ability to reduce the waste off those billets, all of a sudden now we're using portions of the billets that we may not have used before. So we're reducing waste, we're adding structural integrity, and we're making sure that a process, sort of an, I don't want to say an unwelcome process, but a non-intuitive process doesn't get just sort of shoehorned into our factory um, methods. We're, we're dealing with the, the, the abilities and the tooling and the materials that are already there at that factory. I'm pretty excited about that one. I can tell. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, the monolithic structural CLT arch. That's fantastic. So it's time to bring it in for a landing. I want to... Um, I want to thank you so much, Patty, for your enthusiasm and your eloquence. And I, I actually kind of want to reach out and through you and through this podcast and thank the whole team at PNNL, Green Canopy Node, Virginia Tech, Washington State, Simpson, all those people, Mass yep. Timber folks, right. Timber HP. Yeah, I mean, circles within, cycles within cycles, loops within loops, circles within circles here of, of cleverness, of caring, of perseverance, of effort. Um, tremendous. We really hit the jackpot with the team. I, I used to work at a small private research facility, good people, good knowledge, good connections, lots of great equipment, a wonderful lab. But being at one of the national labs with the depth and the breadth that are available and then all of the connections that people have, it's just it's just been a dream job, and this particular project has a dream team, I have to say. I feel really fortunate to work with all these people. I'm a generalist by nature, so I'm having a blast, and I do have energy modeling, a background and some, some um, building closures, um, knowledge and in, in, in use, and so I've found a place for myself on the team, and I'm just so thrilled to work with everyone. We've got people who have been in the industry for a very long time, but we've got a whole bunch of really young players, too. In fact... Green Canopy Node once, and, and they are the biggest financial contributor. You know, a lot of these federal government contracts require cost share. Green Canopy Node isn't just talking the talk and, and kind of doing the work, but they, they have invested in this project as well to a great degree. And one of the things that they did when, when we were awarded the funding was they said, this is important enough. We're going to have somebody dedicated just to this project. So at Green Canopy Node, Sadie Carlson, her job is this project, and that's amazing. I mean, it's pretty hard to find that level of commitment anywhere. And so, yeah, and and when and when uh, the structural team was was headhunted by another university, the university was thrilled to take on that contract 
And um, those two structural engineers were thrilled to take the project with them because it means that much. So it's really been fun. What a cool team. What a cool team. Well, thank you again, Patty. And, and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.